We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is God's word. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thank you, Jesus, for teaching us how to pray and revealing the loving Father to us, who, by your Spirit, we can call out to as Abba Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, Lord, for adopting us into your kingdom, and that we can approach your throne room of grace without fear. You are the author of all life, and we know that your will is always done. Thank you for how you guide us through, though we are blind, help us listen to you so that we can partner with you in bringing heaven to Tucson and beyond. Give us this day our daily bread. I am grateful that we can ask of you and expect you to answer lovingly. You do not give us a snake when we ask for a fish. You don't play tricks on us. You feed the birds and clothe the flowers. We are worth more than those things, so... Help us not to worry about tomorrow, trusting that you are providing for us while we work through today, one day at a time. And forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Please help me with the log in my eye before holding the speck in my neighbor's eye against him. Spirit, help us to love others the way we long to be loved. Thank you for already forgiving our every little and big sin, for it is all a stain to you that Jesus has washed clean by his death and resurrection. But we know that we should have mercy on others since you have infinite mercy on us. Help us forgive each other even if we have to forgive someone up to 70 times seven times. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Please prune us into being fruitful trees of good fruit. Let us listen to your spirit and let him guide us in every situation toward you and away from the enemy's lies and our own sinful inclinations. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, thank you, Justine, and to whoever did that switcheroo, you know, what a messed up joke that was. No. Um, I'll just add to that um, this, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So the uh, the topic this evening is, is grief. Uh, there's just, just as a matter of a little bit of recap here, we're in the, uh, the end of the book of Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians, and we, we skipped ahead because some of it really was a, a personal address, and chapters 4 and 5 are more the practical stuff in this book, and we talked about how Paul was encouraging this group of believers who were in kind of a trade city uh, that they would have been in an area where Christianity would have been brought to them. There were probably Jewish folks in the area and many Greeks. And he's addressing these people and teaching them that their motive is to please God, uh, not just to earn favor with God. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Um, we talked about the ideal of working quietly, and this was to say that they were to 
not to try to do good works in front of people to be noticed in one sense, but even more than that, they were not to stop doing good works because they were anticipating the return of Jesus. And Paul is teaching them just even, you know, we don't know when Jesus might return, which is a key Christian belief. Um, but, but even if it were tomorrow, uh, you should do the daily things in your life to be faithful. And then here, he, he digs a little more into some of their questions around death and the end and discusses grief with them, which we're going to uh, work out in detail. So grief, death, uh, these are topics that we kind of try to avoid sometimes, um, but they're, they're unavoidable. I know at least a few of us uh, in this church who, who this week are facing these very questions and, and kind of in profound and even surprising ways. Um, great film and literature is always engaging the subject because it's so important. Um, I watched Pinocchio, the, the new Guillermo uh, del Toro's Pinocchio, and if, if you've seen it or if you watch it, you'll learn it's more about grief and death and eternity than truth-telling. Actually, that's really what's, what's being explored. Uh, I finished a book this week called The Incredible Winston Brown, and the entire book was, was framed around the beginning and end of a cancer journey of a, of a sheriff in a small town. And there was a lot of, of detail uh, within the book. Um, it's great, great literature, great stories often engage this because it's something that we do think about and we deal with in our lives. I've experienced uh, at least two uh, very significant deaths in my own personal life that came earlier than expected. Um, some of you know that my best friend died when I was in my early 20s, and my dad died in 2017, which was earlier than I would have expected. Um, and my experiences of grief and loss were varied, and faith's role in it, for me, were very complex. And that's been true of, of many friends, and some of you all in this church that, that I know and have walked with, is that no two stories are the same. No grief journey is the same. Um, just to give you a window into mine, and I do this not to um, make it about me, but because sometimes, you know, our journeys invite others to think about theirs. Um, for me, I watched my parents grieve when I was younger, and it was complicated. My grandpa had never been close. I had never been close to my grandpa. He and my dad weren't close. And I remember the, the night. There was a night my dad got a phone call, and, and he kind of rolled over. I think, that, like, I remember hearing the phone ring, but he was in bed. So it was, like, right before bedtime. And he just said, oh, okay, and hung up the phone. That was him learning his father had died, and he went to bed. And I remember we drove down to the funeral in Bisbee, and my dad was always a quiet guy, but he, there was no emotional experience for him. His father's death did not hit him, ever. And I, I, as I've thought back on this, I think he felt the loss of his father as a child when the connection never came. Um, and it just didn't impact him at that time. On the flip side, my mom's sister, uh, youngest sister, died when she was pretty young, and she was my favorite aunt, maybe my favorite family member. I remember I was re really into baseball, and she was one of the few family members who saw that and like, was like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest in this. She would buy me things. She took me to a, a baseball museum at one point. And when she died, I, I was really sad, but my mom was so immediately impacted and wanted me to relate to that, 
that it actually stifled my own experience of grief. It was emotionally confusing. Like, I was sad, but I felt like I had to come through for another person in very specific ways. And I remember saying to her, to kind of get her to, to give me some space, I told her I didn't care that my aunt died and, like, went into my room. And I'm, I'm still ashamed of that to this day. It was, and it wasn't true. But I was feeling this discomfort in how to, like, meet the needs of a person who was grieving while I was experiencing some of it myself. So that's heavy, right, and uncomfortable stuff. And I'd put money on, the, on most of us having some kind of clunky or unique experience with grief. Or potentially it would be that way in somebody else's estimation because to you it felt normal, which is how I felt often in those situations. Until several, several years later, my best friend in the world is heading back to town. He was from here in Tucson, but was living in Denver. And he and his fiance were headed back here for their wedding. He called me to harass me about not getting my shirt um, in time. I was late getting my shirt. And the next phone call I got, I was at work, and it was a family friend that said, if you could sit down somewhere, that might be good. And I said, huh? And, and she said, Sam and Valerie are dead. Um, they rolled their car this morning on the freeway. Valerie fell asleep at the wheel. She died on impact. And Sam was airlifted and died in the hospital. And I didn't sit down, and I went right back to work. It like, and it hit me. Something in me does not work. It's like there's a grief switch, and it flipped, and the light did not turn on. But it should have. There's just nothing. So Paul taught this in, to the Thessalonians. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. As many of you can sense, I'm sure, as I describe these parts of my story, I was not an informed Christian following Scripture. I was a broken boy who couldn't process my emotions, right? I remember once when I was a kid, I touched a cast iron wood stove. It was so hot, I couldn't feel it, and I left my hand on it until the burn was terrible. Um, that's kind of what it was like. I was touching something I couldn't feel, and I didn't know what was happening inside of me. So what is Paul trying to teach us here if it's not don't feel grief? Because that's not what it is. He's trying to teach those under his pastoral care at least three things. I always see three things, don't I? I can't stop myself every time. Um, but, I, but I see him teaching them to embrace the basic, one of the basic tenets of Christianity, to be Christian, then to be informed, but then probably most of all, to be encouraged. So to be Christian, what do I mean? I mean to embrace resurrection. That's something Paul is teaching. I think we as a culture are obsessed with life after death, actually. As much as our science um, and textbooks may deny it, we believe or at least want to believe in it. The first funeral I ever did 
as a pastor was for an, a non-religious and even anti-religious man. This is not usually the place where you start um, as a young pastor, but his granddaughter was in our church, and I remember sitting with the family, and they were crystal clear. He did not believe in God, in Jesus, or anything, and it would be dishonoring to him to say that he did. You can't say that he did. He didn't. It didn't happen on his deathbed. He did not. So I had to get up and, as a Christian young pastor, figure out how to talk about that. And I did, and I actually lost my voice that day, partially, which was awful, because he was also, I forgot, a, a, a highly decorated general in the Air Force, so they, they flew the jets over and everything, and it was my first funeral. Um, and then a family member got up, emotional, and shared how much he loved macaroni and cheese, and with passion, asserted that he was definitely in heaven eating mac and cheese right now. And everybody started to weep. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I thought we weren't doing this whole heaven thing. I was very surprised. Guys, I'm no longer surprised by that kind of stuff. Because people can shift views entirely at someone's death because there's a deep longing that we have that there's more to life than this. And people, I see it over and over. We want in our culture, we want eternal life. The number one question I've gotten from skeptical people in Tucson, Arizona, in my now 10 years of being a pastor, um, number one question is, do pets live forever? I'm serious. The, that, I have heard a lot of hard questions, uh, but, but uh, all the science, all the, that's the number one question. Do pets live forever? And then second to that, what about the people that we like and we miss? Um, we just hang up on which version we, we want to believe, and we especially hang up when it comes to people who are evil. It gets really complicated when you're a victim of abuse, and you want to believe that there's life after death, but, but not for certain people, right? Or you're considering something like an evil dictator. To, to say that we all pass through the same tunnel with the same light at the end violates, to some degree, our sense of justice to the core. It can undo some of the highest principles that we stand for in this life, for you to live whatever kind of life you live, and then at the end, we all get the same thing. Well, Christianity doesn't just teach eternal life. It teaches something more unique. The merit-based religions teach that you work and you get what you earn. You're either in or you're out. Or in a more fine-tuned system, you might be reincarnated and come back as something more specific that you deserve. If you're really bad, you might be like a beetle, but the good news is your life would be very short as a beetle. And then you do it again. And to some, to some degree, those, those systems get something right. There's a sense that they line up with justice, that you get what you deserve. Naturalism, on the other hand, is, um, if correct, it would say that there's no justice. Good, the good are as dead as the evil, and it's all meaningless. But Christianity teaches something different, a view that's spelled out in the Bible um, 
that deals with the dilemmas that come up in those systems as to who deserves what. Um, and this is why I believe it's of God. The, Christ, the Christian view embraces justice, but also exalts grace. Simply put, the, t- the, the Bible teaches one resurrection for all people, and that is that you would return from death to life, and it's followed by judgment. So there's hope or life after death with the stipulation of fairness that you can only enter if you pass through the judgment. So who is worthy to pass through the judgment? The scriptures refuse to draw an arbitrary line somewhere that says here is where good is good enough. The Christian view is devastating. It says to be good enough, you have to be perfect. And what do we deserve if we're not perfect? Paul in the book of Romans spells it out this way. The wages or what you earn or deserve because of your sin is to die. Which begs the question, why did God create damned people? And why would we even bother to try to reach an impossible goal? There must be something else going on. And the scriptures teach that God did not create us to compete or succeed. God created us to experience his love and mercy and grace. In fact, we were created with full knowledge that we would not deserve eternal life. Love and grace and mercy are core qualities that God has, and they can only be experienced by a flawed person. Someone who is lower than God, veiled in their understanding, and broken. Only a sinner can be forgiven. And these qualities that God has are so good that the best films and songs and books and stories speak of sacrifice and restoration, forgiveness and grace. John, I'm not going to spoil Pinocchio, right? But look for the hero moment when you watch it. What happens? For grace to be possible, for us to get what we don't deserve, for justice to be upheld and someone to pay the dues, somebody has to pay. And in Christianity, Jesus pays on the cross. But he didn't just die and rot, he rose again. And what does that mean? That means that death isn't ultimate. Jesus is. It means that death doesn't have the final say. God does, it means that death is in fact a door. And in Jesus, it's a door to experiencing love and grace. You could say, as Jesus said, that he is the door via his death and our own. The book of Hebrews is a thorough explanation to a Jewish audience of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Um, But it also gives us a succinct description of what Christianity is. Hebrews 9, 27 to 28 says this, it's appointed for mankind to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Jesus Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, because that was already dealt with, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christians believe that people die once 
and there is a judgment before our Creator, and you can experience that judgment, and it can go one of three ways. Either it's something you fear because you'll be found impure and unworthy, which is everyone's initial experience, or it's something that you wait for eagerly because it's the day when you will see that your sins were laid upon Jesus and you'll experience his love deeper than you've ever experienced it before. And the third option is that on top of that, there's a joyous reward because some of your life was lived to please God. And you get to receive that from his hand, understanding you didn't earn your way in. Jesus died to save you, and the grace you received was completely unmerited, but also some of the works you were done were animated by his grace. So that's an explanation of the Christian faith. You believe that justice and grace find perfect harmony, that God lays his life down in the sun and saves sinners, and we live with the motive of pleasing God, an eternal unknown reward, but death is the door to experiencing more grace. That's what it means to be a Christian. Be informed. This is my second thing here. Paul goes beyond just teaching the the basics of Christianity. Resurrection is the key to being a Christian. Um, It's a core tenet. It's kind of how we define Christianity. So we say Jesus rose from the dead. We have this table here saying that he died and he bled, but that's not where the story ends. Do you believe this? If you do, even just a little bit, you're Christian. But Paul said more. Um, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And then he shares even more details. He wanted the, the people of Thessalonica to be informed about more. He wrote, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. And by the way, this likely means that he heard what Jesus said in Matthew 24, maybe even personally, because what he says here parallels Matthew's story of Jesus, the 24th chapter. You can look and see the parallels between the two. But he says, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Basically, he says this, whoever's alive when Jesus, who is alive now, by the way, in Paul's mind and ours, whoever's alive when Jesus returns to usher in the next stage of God's plan um, will not be the first to be saved or resurrected. No, those who have died will they will be resurrected first. Now, you have to be really careful when you read the Bible or an ancient text. Why? Because it is applicable to you and me, but it was written to someone else. It can't mean to me what it didn't mean to the people of Thessalonica. That violates a core principle of interpreting the Bible. The task of Bible study is to discover what it meant when written and then apply that to ourselves and our context. So, Sadly, um, often we're taught to read the Bible and ask, what does it mean to me, whether emotionally or literally? Um, And by literal, we tend to mean literally to me. 
I wish we had more time to go in and explore this, but when you dig into the historical evidence around this time and this culture, their view of death was very hopeless. It was very detrimental. It was like, it either meant that grief was acute because the person is dead and they will be no more and they will be lost even to our memory, or it was muted because this was just bare destiny and it all just didn't matter. But when you read the people of this time, the writers of this time, it is bleak, their view on death. Paul has seen people who are shaped more by their culture than by their belief in a resurrected Savior because that's what they lived in for their entire life. And that's why he appreciates and actually adopts a term from their culture to use. And that's the word sleep. It seems that it was very common for people in this time and in this region to speak of death as sleep. And in a way, they're betraying their own belief because they believed there was nothing more to come, but they used a word that has a connotation. What do you do when you sleep? You wake up. And Paul saw that and he affirmed it and he used it as a bridge concept. He said, in a sense, you're onto something when you use the word sleep. How would we apply that today? Well, as I mentioned before, our culture often embraces the meaninglessness of life. Um, we betray that constantly, though, by avoiding death. Why do we avoid death if our life is meaningless? Why would it matter? Um, we betray that in, our, in the fact that we don't want to look at death at all. We, we seem to fear it. We betray it with our words when we say things like, they've gone to a better place or they've passed on. Maybe we need to learn to use these as bridge concepts. I think we live in a culture that longs to believe in eternal life, but is just scared to believe in something specific. Maybe that's where you are. Ask yourself, why is it that I'm so inclined to hope for more? Is that just foolish, wishful thinking? It could be. Or maybe the fact that humanity in all of history has been inclined to believe in life after death and has been inclined to believe that life matters to some degree might mean that you're onto something. It might mean that your hunch is correct. And maybe you need to seek the system that makes the most sense of it all, that takes justice seriously, that inspires the best stories the world has to offer, that teaches you to love sacrificially, embrace humility. You know which one I think it is. Then maybe you should consider these things. Now, there are other details here to be informed about. He talks about the coming of the Lord, the descent from heaven, the voice and the sound of the trumpet, the dead in Christ rising first, the rest of us meeting the Lord in the air. And I, I will we'll get a little more into this next week, but I, I would say... Well, if you really want to dig, go read G.K. Beale's commentary on 1 Thessalonians. That's what I do. And, and he's great. But one of the things that he, um, he deals with some, some complicated questions that people ask. What does it mean? I've heard this one too. What does it mean to like ascend or descend from a sphere? Like, the whole world is going to see Jesus return, and he's going to descend. Does he, like, only descend here and not on the other side? What's, 
what's going on? What does it mean to appear in the air over a planet that is a sphere? Like these are, those are solid questions. And the great thing is when, when Beale, who's a, who, I mean, he's a, he's a wise guy, he's a historian, he's an exegete, what he brings up is he says, ah, this actually, um, this actually exposes a couple things. First of all, these words to them didn't limit the concepts to up, down, over, under. We read these as scientific words. They were not scientific words. By the way, people of their day, you think Kyrie Irving's interesting? They were all flat earthers back then, okay? They had no idea, and they couldn't. There was no way that they could know. And these words weren't talking about, they weren't trying to give you a scientifically accurate, you know, Jesus descends like on a stairwell, and then he comes down here, and then we all go back up here. I mean, people used to kind of believe that kind of stuff. But they, they weren't speaking in those terms. The people wouldn't have read them in those terms. They didn't have the background information about planets and space that we have. They wouldn't have read them that way. This is an ancient language speaking of dimensions of reality and, and describing them spatially in a way that doesn't need to be scientific. But they're speaking about dimensions of reality, that God enters into this dimension of reality. Elsewhere in Revelation 6, 14, the same moment is described as a scroll being like rolled and ripped in half. And you could imagine like a stage play where the curtain is ripped back and you see all the actors behind it. And it's kind of this idea that the people who would see the return of Christ would actually see someone who'd been there all along. Like the veil is torn back and you see the God who has been present all along, but in a dimension, in a spiritual plane that we cannot experience. Now back then, if you tried to say that to an ancient person, they would have gone, huh? About 20, 30 years ago, if you'd said that to a scientific person, to you know, somebody who is, who is knowledgeable, they would have said, no way. But today, they would say, actually, that's possible. The more we learn, the more we learn, actually, there are other dimensions. And time doesn't work the same in them. Google it. It's fascinating. <laughs> I really can't explain it. But this is talking about a moment, see, when God, who is behind all things, reveals himself. That's what it's talking about. This isn't scientific language. Jesus does not descend a staircase. God is present in and behind our experience of this world now, and the descent is into a dimension that we can experience. Clouds in the scripture, for instance, are, are always emblematic of the presence of God. Think back of the, the exodus. They're led by the spirit in a cloud. When God is on the mountaintop, and he delivers his words and his commands. He's present in the cloud. It's the presence of God breaking into our reality, bringing life from death. Death, therefore, is like a nap from God's perspective in which we fall asleep here on earth, and one day when he reveals himself, the dead will rise. How does that all work? I have no idea, and I'm really glad I don't, because then I might be God, and that would be complicated. I don't know. But resurrection means, this is the cool thing, it's not just the good faithful people get saved by Jesus, it means that the broken people, the dead, those who've suffered the wages of sin, which is death, but receive Jesus are transformed by grace and reunited with him. Basically, it means 
by grace, the work of death is undone. And Paul details out here, he's saying, people are merely asleep, they will awaken, which spoke to the longings of the Thessalonians and to us. The way they awaken is by Jesus returning into the dimension we can experience. We'll talk about that a lot more next week, um, but I think uh, I'll leave it at that for now. Because what what he really wants to do is encourage you. He concludes with this thought, we will always be with the Lord. That's what they really took away. They heard all those words and all those details, and I really don't think they like made maps and tried to figure out exactly how Jesus came back. I think they went, he returns, we'll always be with the Lord. And then he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Um, I think we need to hear that long and slow, especially a lot of us in Christian traditions who've grown up here in the States, We will always be with the Lord, so be encouraged. So often the return of Jesus unfortunately stokes fear or like a mapping out of an escape plan or like preparing to fight people. That is not what he says. Encourage each other. You will always be with the Lord. That's really what you need to know. Jesus returns to finish what he started. Um, The Bible says about people, he will complete the good work that he started in you. And the same is true of creation. He created it. It was good. He returns and he finishes what he started. The realm of God's presence breaks back in all over the universe. And when you die, you enter a time of rest in which you await that day. The book I mentioned, the incredible Winston Brown, did a really um, great job of exploring this. Um, it felt really true to my experience. The book opens with, uh, with this sheriff who's dying, and it tells you that from first sentence. So again, John, I'm not spoiling this book for anybody. You'll know if you read it, it's uh, the guy's dying. And the death is never glamorized. It's always painful. Um, it's, a, it's a curse and a scourge all throughout the story. It's, he's fighting to breathe throughout every page. But it's also a door. It's not described as natural, but it doesn't get the last word. Um, Winston, the, the sheriff who's uh, in the story, has the classic live like you're dying experience in some sense. He learns of his impending death, but it frees him to live while also being very painful and very frustrating. I'm aware that death can be very sudden, as with my friend Sam's story, right? But it can also be drawn out and therefore be a mix of beauty and pain. It can open many wounds. But honestly, it gives opportunity to leave nothing unsaid, to right wrongs, and to take a loving risk, which is what this character in this story does. He, he takes the risk to love in ways that he never had once he learns that he's going to die. And then his deathbed experience is worked out over a chapter or two. And the metaphor that Jesus used is evident on the pages because it's compared to a birth. 
the author talks about birth, um, it's always painful. It is not clean. But it is always followed when there is a live birth by joy and a reception and gratitude despite all the pain. Because a new life has begun. That life translates into a new dimension through the pain. It is messy and painful, but it can be joyful and full of light. At one point, Winston looks at his corpse and he feels light and free and as if he's entering a celebration, but he sees people weeping and lamenting his death. In fact, they were weeping even more once he'd learned to love. And then the book ends contemplating his legacy, the ways that those who lost their friend and father figure nurtured new life and justice in his stead. My two stories are full of tragedy and full of grace as well. Sam, my friend, had been kind of a pompous guy. He was known for using his words to promote himself and irritate others. And he'd been changing over time. Valerie, his uh, fiance, was helping with that. She was really nice and I'm sure scolded him on a regular basis. Um, and they never got to get married. They died on the way. In fact, the day of their funeral or was, would have been the wedding day. And a missionary um, came to the funeral who was back in the States, sounded like he'd been going through some hard times, and he was on the same highway. He was at a gas station, and he felt the sense that something was going on with the people in the gold Toyota Tacoma. You didn't know what it was. And so he was keeping an eye on it as they were going down the highway. And of course, he saw them swerve and roll over, and he ran to the truck. And Valerie was dead. And Sam, my friend, was alive and aware. And the missionary man became very emotional and was confused and trying to figure out what to do. And Sam, strapped into the truck, dying, looked at him and said, it's going to be okay. Can I pray for you? Sam wasn't a spiritual guy, really. He wasn't, he didn't come across that way. He was a rock and roll musician, a little rough around the edges. But as he died, he prayed for someone else who was distraught. And that story was told at his funeral. My dad died slowly of cancer, and thankfully for him, he was unaware of it for years. I think it would have tortured him to know. And when he when we found out there were six weeks left, and he didn't like to die. He liked to take walks. He did not like the hospital. But he also didn't complain a lot. When the nurse would ask him, how's your pain, he would say zero, which was not true, because he had like a 12-inch incision up his belly. And at one point, I asked him, what are you praying for now? And he just looked at me and said, I don't know. Come, Lord Jesus. He kind of put up his hand. 
Well, that's the last prayer of the Bible, Revelation 22. That, that short little three-word piece. The Apostle John quotes Jesus saying that he's coming soon. And then John, to finish the scriptures, says, amen, which means let it be. Come, Lord Jesus. A couple nights later, we visited my dad. He was in hospice now. He was fighting to live, very uncomfortable. The doctors and nurses had suggested that this could go on for months. They were going to send him home to die. That was too much for my mom. I left last that night, and I prayed on my way out. I said, Jesus, he wants to come to you. Would you bring him? Would you take him? Like, take him now. My dad got up to do something in the room, and he sat down, and he died instantly that night. The nurse called us. She felt terrible. She didn't think it was going to happen yet, and she wished she'd encouraged us to stay, but I told her it was fine, that we, were, we knew it was time. And I told my mom about my prayer, and she said, I prayed the same thing. And death is mysterious like a birth, because we honestly felt relief and even a subtle joy for him at that point, even amidst all the pain. But the best part of that whole story, the hardest but the best, was I felt everything. All six weeks, I was crying. I was learning to talk openly about my feelings. Like the switch flipped and the light came on. It worked. Um, and not only did my dad move from death to life, but I could tell it was happening inside of me too. I was becoming more alive. That's probably one of the most profound changes I've ever had in my Christian journey. I thought, like, I'd be a missionary or something, and, like, that would be the thing, you know? Or I'd be a really great scholar, and you guys would hear my words and go, wow, that guy knows a lot of stuff. The biggest change that Jesus has chosen to do to me through the work of the church and counseling and retreat after retreat is that He's brought me to the point of being alive enough to feel pain that I couldn't feel when I was younger. And I feel alive because of it. And I'm really grateful. Grieving as those who have no hope is not the absence of grief. It's grieving with deep hope. We're all on different journeys. Um, we'll have to be patient with each other as we grieve. We'll all experience it differently. Some of you may have been mildly yelled at by me during that time because it's just unsettling. And we're going to have to forgive one another for the ways we fail each other in our grief. I've seen this many times. But grief and death are a way to life. Wherever you're at with grief, if you're amidst it, if you've had many waves of it over the years, or maybe, maybe you're still wondering what it's going to be like when it happens to you, be encouraged. Jesus has passed through death as well. And on the night he was betrayed, foreseeing his death, he said, this is my body, 
broken for you. The wages of sin is death, Paul taught us in Romans, and Jesus paid what we owe on the cross. He knows what it means to bear that kind of weight. But then he took the wine from the table. In their day, the wine was the drink of the feast and celebration. He said, this is my blood, shed for the forgiveness of many. And then he said, I I will not drink this again until I drink it anew with you. And that's a promise that foretold his resurrection. And his resurrection from the dead confirms it's true. That there's a future day when eternity breaks in, when death is undone, and all things are made new. So come, Lord Jesus. I'm going to pray for us now and leave a couple minutes for you just to pray silently. If there's something you need to deal with with God, a confession, a question, anything at all, that's space for you. And after that, we'll take the Lord's Supper. And uh, this evening, I want you to contemplate what that means for our grief that we have a suffering Savior who understands but has also defeated death. And then um, we're going to eat dinner which is joyous. And you know what it's supposed to do? This and the meal together are supposed to be a little taste that God is undoing all the death and destruction. We celebrate what he's done on the cross, the covering of our shame, and we enjoy one another. So let's pray. Um, Again, I'll leave two minutes for you. Father in heaven, thank you for these people. We all have different stories of grief and pain and loss, and you know them so well. Speaking this evening of death, but we grieve so much more, don't we? There are so many losses we've endured. Jesus, you entered in to our situation. You lost your life, but you saw others die. You wept at the grave of Lazarus. You were betrayed, you were ignored, you've been through relational pain and loss, you lost your dad, your earthly dad, you know what it's like, thank you. As we think about these things, may we feel the comfort of your presence, may we grieve, but not as those who have no hope, so lead us now as we pray.